0: Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil, and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen-Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. I'm so glad you tuned in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Associate Professor Chiara Cordelli about the privatized state. Welcome to the program.
1: So thank you very much, Beth, for for inviting me here. Uh, It's really a pleasure to be able to discuss my book, The The Privatized State, with you today.
0: So it's a very interesting book. We're looking forward to this. What inspired you to write The Privatized State?
1: Maybe, I mean, there were, of course, many motivations behind I wanted to write a book on an important topic that mattered for the world, but also at the same time... I'm a political philosopher, and I wanted also to um, use this as an excuse to answer, you know, sort of uh, um, certain fundamental um, philosophical questions. Um, but initially, perhaps what inspired me the most to write about the privatized state was really almost like the quasi-paradoxical character of this uh, phenomenon. After all, I think if. Very historically we think about the birth of the modern administrative state, um, think also about the fact that the state, um, you know, uh, formed also to separate the public and the private. For example, replacing, say, patrimonial relations of dependence that were typical of feudalism with a system of public offices oriented towards say, strict impartiality. But we may think that the processes of privatization today reverse this logic. So they sort of generate a new fusion between public and private within the state itself. So think about what happened since the 1980s in the neoliberal age, right? Many governments have started outsourcing. Uh, uh, add their more essential functions, think about military operations, uh, the privatization of prisons, health care, uh, welfare provision, education, not to mention even more recently the increasing role of philanthropy as a sort of substitute of government funding for you know, public programs. So I thought that, uh, you know, on the one hand, the government becomes more and more a network of private actors. And on the other hand, it's the bureaucratic structure of the city itself that becomes increasingly marketized. Think about, I don't know, American, the ex-American US president Trump that tried to, right, strip public offices of tenure protection and transform government more and more like a, to a business. And so I thought, you know, this process changes the way government works, how we think about government, it makes government very different from how it appears in books of political theory. So I wanted to study this phenomenon from an ethical perspective. And while doing that, also, as I said, try to answer some very old philosophical question. For example, the question about why there should be a state in the first place. Um, what gives democratic institutional authority? Right? What's the nature of legitimacy and representation within a democratic state, um, et cetera, etc. And so that was, I think, you know, my main motivation into um, beginning writing this book.
0: Is privatization a good thing? Uh,
1: well, I think he really the answer depends on how we what we mean by good or bad. So um, privatization is, and this is, a suspect, is the reason why political philosophers haven't studied it basically almost at all, but it's privatization is generally treated as a technocratic problem, right? The question that is generally asked, that it's a question that is often left to economists or political scientists, is whether or not privatizing these or that functions, say highways or transports as opposed to healthcare, generate certain good or bad outcomes say more efficient gains or a better quality of services etc cetera, etc cetera. so if this is how we understand you know the question of whether privatization is good or bad then of course it's a purely contingent question and will depend on a variety of factors about particular function the particular context of privatization but i think that uh, thinking about the goodness or badness of privatization in this purely you know, outcomes-oriented way, as, this as a matter of cost-benefit analysis, is, I think, personally, highly reductive because it neglects really a fundamental question, which is, right, if private actors, as I said, are called to act as government agents, can they really act with the legitimacy government purpose to act? And, um, you know, reversely, can a government that has morphed into a network of private actors still rule legitimately? And so one purpose of the book was precisely, right, to reorient our, our thinking about privatization rather than thinking, is this particular kind of privatization good or bad? We should ask, is the privatized state a legitimate form of institutional organization?
0: What are political institutions for and what justifies the existence of a democratic state? Um,
1: Well, you know, this is a question that I really tried to answer at the beginning of the book. And, uh, um, um, right, like, like, the let me first perhaps explain why i start from there because we might think you know we can start an analysis of privatization from say the moral limits of markets or whether it's morally objectionable to act for profit motives or 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 not etc et whereas i start from um right i wanted to provide an ethical analysis that stressed the paradoxical character of the privatized state that I mentioned at the beginning and so I wanted to ask right um, if privatization seems to changes the state work and reprivatize the state, is the privatized state still compatible with what makes a state justified to begin with and that's why I start with the question of uh, right why there should be a democratic state in the first place and here my view Uh, really follows Kant and tries to defend Kant political philosophy against some recent attacks. But basically the view is that the existence of the democratic state is justified by the fact that it is the only entity with all its defects and right potential for corruption, but it's the only entity that can in principle secure justice understood here as a condition of reciprocal freedom, and so also of equal rights, while at the same time avoiding domination. And this is to say that a democratic state, if properly constituted, can secure justice through institutions that do not subject any citizens to the purely private and unilateral legislative will of another. And since to be subjected to someone else's merely unilateral will, right, especially when it comes to the definition of what our rights are, our basic duties are, et cetera, et cetera, is a form of bad subjection. It's a form of domination. Then we can say that the purpose of political institution is not simply to coordinate activity, but is also, as I said, to secure justice while avoiding this kind of domination.
0: How does privatization reduce the problem of domination or unilateral subjection within the state itself?
1: Yes, so one of the arguments of uh, the book is precisely after I explain why there should be a democratic state in the first place and one of the responses that, the democratic state is necessary to overcome a certain kind of problem of unilateral, of subjection to a unilateral will. So unilateral subjection, which is, as I said, a form of domination. Then uh, an important part of the book tries to show how privatization, and and so the privatized state, right? the, The privatization of governance within the state, unavoidably reproduces within the state itself this very same problem of domination that the state is supposed to overcome in the first place so privatization in this way we may say destroys the very reason that the very reason for existing of the modern democratic state itself um how does this happen well let me um you know this is a complicated part of the book and it's long but very briefly um you know in the book i argue that in order to achieve its end of securing justice while avoiding domination a democratic state uh importantly including its system of public administration it must be constituted in a particular way not everything goes let's say so um in particular, and this is important, right? All exercises of decisional and discretions that determine the definition, determine, let's say, citizens' rights, the scope of their rights, the scope of their obligations of citizens, but also the distribution of resources that are necessary for their freedom of equality. All these exercises of substantive, we might call a discretion, must satisfy certain normative conditions to be non-dominating and so to be legitimate the first is that very obviously i would say is that they must be validly authorized democratically and so here there is a condition that we may call of authorization the second is that they must be exercised in the name of all the people understood as a collective body that is These exercises of discretion must be exercised in a representative capacity. And the judgment they express must be representative of a public, right, of a united public in some sense. And finally, they must meet a domain condition, that is, um, public administrators uh, um, uh, must do what is that they uh, are authorized to do. They can exercise discretion outside of the boundaries of their authorization. And so, one important part of the book is precisely aimed at showing how privatization and that's compromising all these normative conditions for the legitimate exercises of administrative discretion. And because of that, it reproduces within the state itself that problem of domination that, as I said, the state was precisely justified to solve in the first instance.
0: What is the problem with
1: authorization? So, briefly, the problem is that um, privatization, I think especially when it acquires a systematic character. So here it's important, not only the particular function that is privatized, but also how much privatization there is the problem is that privatization especially as i said when systematic compromises i argue in the book the ability of a people to exercise democratic self-rule and this in turn compromises the validity of a democratic decision to privatize so um you know let me uh, explain a little bit why i think so first privatization Um, foreseeably and unavoidably um, undermines, I think, what are a certain minimal precondition of democratic self-rules, in particular, the capacity of citizens to exercise directive control over public affairs, also their ability to maintain civic vigilance, so to be vigilant about abuses of power and and other matters. And finally, it undermines a fair distribution of opportunity for political influence. So in the book, I explain one by one, also through example, and, you know, example taken um, for the most part from the United States, because, of course, the United States is a country with a very extended, where privatization is very extended in scope, but also from other countries, I explain why privatization Um, produces this problem and therefore ends up undermining what I call the very minimal preconditions of democratic uh, self-rule. And then I, I argue, because I think that's true, that in a democracy, a government simply does not have the right to make political choices. Uh, including choices to privatize, which foreseeably and avoidably undermine the minimal preconditions of democratic self-rule. And this is because, and this is a a very controversial view in philosophy, but I think that the right to democratic self-rule, including, therefore, the maintenance of the minimal precondition for its exercise cannot be validly abdicated, cannot be given away. And so uh, it follows that in contexts where privatization is already widespread, further attempts at privatization should, uh, I think, often be considered as lacking valid democratic authorization. And this means that in this context, and as I said, for example, I think the US is is one of them, citizens become subject to exercises of substantial forms of discretion by private actors, um, which however should be regarded as like this exercise of discretion, these forms of decisional power are not really validly democratically authorized. And therefore they remain merely unilateral, right? Merely private. It's like being subject to the will of, you know, your neighbor or your friend. They are not supposed to govern you or to make extremely important decisions about your rights and duties. And so this is one way in which the problem that I called at the beginning a problem of domination of unilateral subjection becomes reproduced um, um, within the state itself. But there are other ways as well.
0: You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. And I'm speaking with Associate Professor Chiara Cordelli, about the privatized state. And how about the problem of representative agency?
1: Great. So, the problem of authorization I've just explained, right, the problem that certain forms of privatization count as being not as validly democratically authorized. And so, the consequence is that when private actors act, they act like if they are, you know, just independent actors rather than truly authorized by a democratic government. The problem of representation picks up a different problem. It's like, let's assume that these actors are perfectly validly democratically authorized to do what they do, right? They manage prisons, they conduct military operations, they distribute healthcare and welfare services, et cetera, et cetera. So now there is a another problem in my view is that when these actors exercise important forms of discretion they decide how services should be distributed who should have an entitlement to what how coercion should be exercised within prisons except and, and and so on and so forth they should make this decision in the name of all like as agents of government their judgment should count as representative of a public so here the My argument in the book is that private actors systematically fail to act in in a representative capacity. And why is this, this the case? Well, to understand why we first need an account of what it means to act or speak in the name of another. And this is a difficult, again, controversial philosophical question. But very briefly, my view is that, unlike other views, um, it's not sufficient for an agent to act in a representative capacity that the agent does whatever it is that uh, she's authorized to do. The agent must also do it for the appropriate kind of reason. So think about an hypothetical case. This is something that philosophers always like uh, right, to, to push. Like, Think about the hypothetical case of an American spy wants to keep a spying position within the australian government and because she does not want to be discovered the spy does her job as a public official within the australian government impeccably now although the spy does exactly what she's expected to do right by the australian citizens i think she does not uh, act in the name of the australian and the reason is that um, she acts for reasons that is in the ba- on the basis of consideration occupying a spying position for a foreign government that should count as invalid, as excluded, that is ruled out by the kind of political office she occupies. And I think What does this have to do with privatization? Well, I think that uh, private actors are a bit like the spy in the case I've just mentioned, Um, in the sense that they may follow appropriately authorized contractual rules, which means they may do what they are authorized by the government to do, but they often fail to do so for the appropriate kind of reasons. And in fact, uh, they must generally act on the basis of considerations, say, the pursuit of fiduciary obligations toward shareholders, in the case of business firms, or the pursuit of religious charitable goals, in the case of many new profits. So they act on the basis of these considerations that cannot and should not be regarded as valid reasons for action from the perspective of a government agent. And they do so not because they are necessarily badly intentioned, although sometimes they might be, but I, it's because of the nature of their organizations that they demand that they act according to these non-public purposes. And the result I claim is that private actors may achieve good outcomes, but they exercise their power, their decisional capacities in a way that is not representative of a public. And so again, once again, they impose their merely private unilateral will on citizens thereby reproducing once again the problem of domination within the state itself.
0: What are the practical implications of your view?
1: So some implications are let's say negative, and some others are positive, let's say more constructive. So the, the negative implication is that I think, I argue, we have a duty of justice to exit the privatized state, and this in parts requires, among other things, imposing constitutional limits on privatization. This does not mean that all outsourcing should be prohibited, of course, but there are two kinds of privatization of outsourcing of public functions that I think are particularly problematic. Those which delegate significant discretion to private actors, this is generally the case, at least I argue that that's the case in the book, in the case of prisons, in the case of military operations, and in the case also of welfare and healthcare service provision. And. Uh, The second type of delegations um, that are particularly problematic are, you know, the outsourcing of services that should represent the face of the state before its citizens. And I think here, again, the privatization of public programs like uh, the provision of welfare services or even certain educational programs is very, very important. But one consideration I make is that although sometimes it's the particular function that explain why uh, there should be limits to its privatization other times we should think about the limits in ag- aggregated terms is the scope of privatization that becomes a problem because as i argued earlier uh, when it takes a systematic character then privatization undermines the condition of democratic self-rule so Constitutional limit is one one thing I argue for, and the second, what I said more constructive, is that of course privatization is often the consequences of a problem, which is mm-hmm. right citizen. So I was th- maybe I was talking about democratizing the bureaucracy. Yeah. So I I I was um, that right privatization is often the result of a a deeper like citizens distrust in the, the bureaucratic structure of government that they see and, and often rightly so they perceive as inefficient and also alienating. And so I think uh, no solution to the problem of privatization can come without also a proposal for uh, you know legitimizing the bureaucratic apparatus and also for rendering a less alienating and more democratic. And with this aim in mind, I um, propose the introduction of uh, a system of co-determination which is often discussed in relation of business firms. Co-determination in this case, it's the fact that certain decisions should be democratically made by board inclusive of both civil servants or public officials, but also citizens. And so the citizens' participation, and not merely advisory participation, but decisional participation should be included within the bureaucratic structure of the modern state itself. So I I try to propose a model for what we might call a more democratized bureaucracy. And uh, so these are uh, two of the main implications of, of my view, I would say.
0: Right, now you have a chapter on philanthropy and in your book where you provide an account of the duties of donors. Could you explain what duties in your view philanthropists have? Yes, so in the, so philanthropy, let
1: me, um, say it's, it's, of course, different from right now outsourcing, because in the case of privatization understood as delegation of public functions, generally there is a government that uh, sign a contract with the private providers for the private provider to, say, manage some prisons or perform certain tasks of a different kind. Um, in philanthropy, we're, in the case of philanthropy, we're generally talking about independent private. Bill Gates or you know, um, Pulte or uh, you know, even small philanthropists that act on their own for um, the sake of like, producing some public goods um, using their own resources. But I think what philosophical discussion about philanthropy leave out is the question of the distribution of property. So Um, we can talk about philanthropy only if we think that the money the philanthropy gives away are their own. Because otherwise, that's not philanthropy. We would be repaying a debt if the money I am giving away are not actually mine, but they are someone else or they belong to the community, say. So in the book, I try to defend the case that, um, you know, not only given just the extremely vast inequalities that characterize most economic systems um, today. Um, uh, we cannot think about the distribution of property as being just, and so partly of what, part of what philanthropy often give away, especially very wealthy donors, should not be really understood as being entirely their own property but it should be understood as being property that if the world was just, that would belong to someone else. And further, philanthropy has become a means of privatization in the sense that government withdraw often in the knowledge that private actors will independently step in and part independently because of course they often receive very nice tax incentives. So, uh, by being a, a, a part of the system of privatization, I think philanthropy contributes to an unjust system that benefits often the wealthy and further harm the poor. And because of these two reasons, I think that we should think about the duties of philanthropists, especially very wealthy ones, not as
0: charity,
1: not as enlightened self-interest or something like that, but like a duties of reparative justice. Philanthropy in our world should be regarded as a means through which those who can repair a damage or harm for which they can be held liable. And so philanthropy is not a gift, right? But it's a duty to give back, to repair a damage you are responsible for in some way. So it changes the way we think about philanthropy But importantly, I also argue that even if this is the case, we should always think about philanthropy as a second best means because, uh, and we go back to the problem of domination I was talking about at the beginning, philanthropy always entails someone subjecting someone else to their own merely private will. In this case, it's the poor that just becomes dependent for access to material conditions of well-being to a discretionary and arbitrary will of the rich and so philanthropy is always a a dominating way of securing the condition of justice and that's why i have in the book the duty of philanthropy is always I, i i say provisional and temporary
0: is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't already covered
1: I mean, I, I think we've covered many, uh, you know, parts of the book. One thing I would just say is that, you know, this book, I think, can be of interest. It's written both for those who are interested in certain philosophical questions about the nature of the authority of democracy, right? The, the nature of legitimacy, how question of and legitimacy link together, et etc. et cetera. But it's also both hopefully helpful for um uh, people who are not particularly interested in, in this question in thinking about privatization an important phenomenon in our world as a um, way in which the state is changing so it's a it's a phenomenon that is very important historically and th- thinking about it through lenses that are not merely economistic, we can say merely right economics and and i think um uh, that's that's an important thing. and even if it is a book written in the language of analytic philosophy, um I think it could be read also as a form of ideology critique. Here the criticized ideology of course is neoliberalism which is a very much contested concept. but the idea is that if there is one way of putting the forms of ideology critique that is in the book is that it shows how, Neoliberalism promised freedom and promises a new form of liberalism but actually it is inherently illiberal because one fundamental feature of liberalism is that public power should be exercised right for exclusively for public purposes and privatization undoes this commitment that is central to liberalism and as I explain in the book it can be regarded instead as a form of sort of refeudalization of political institution, where political institutions get just trapped into private pursuits and private way of exercising power.
0: Do you have any future study plans within this field?
1: Um, not directly on privatization since I think, you know, um um I said most of what I personally um wanted to contribute to the debate and discussion in the book, but I am definitely still doing research uh, on questions concerning um, the relationship between economic power and uh, political legitimacy and, uh, and, 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 and also distributive justice. And in this particular respect, at the moment I'm writing about what I think is also a very exciting topic, which is the ethics of capital mobility. So how free should capital be to move? Capital meaning financial capital, and especially as it compares to the ethics of human mobility. And in a nutshell, what I'm trying to show is that the movement of capital ought to be much more restricted than the movement of people. Uh, But, you know, this is a different topic, although, of course, there are some, Links uh, with uh, um, the privatization of the state.
0: Oh, that sounds really good. Well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today.
1: Thank you, Beth. This was, as I said, my pleasure, and uh, you know I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I as I did. Thank oh,
0: you. I certainly did, and I've been speaking with Associate Professor Chiara Cordelli about the privatised state. That's all we have time for. Hope you've enjoyed the program. Do stay tuned for Swing and Sway.